In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Hosea chapter 11. This chapter is a powerful and emotional depiction of God's love for Israel, despite their constant rebellion and disobedience. God reveals himself to be both frustrated with Israel's sinful behavior, but also tenderly compassionate toward them. His desire is for the people to repent and be restored, and this is evidence of his incredible depth and his love and mercy. Good morning and blessed Lenten tide. Today is Monday, March 20th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. Each weekday morning, we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is sponsored in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, which assists congregations and missionaries in sharing the good news of Jesus through Lutheran materials translated into foreign languages. Visit lhfmissions.org to discover how they can support you in spreading the gospel and, of course, to explore their whole range of offerings. That's lhfmissions.org. Well, please join me now in welcoming my guest for this morning. To guide our discussion of Hosea chapter 11, I'm pleased to introduce the Reverend Dr. Michael Morehouse, pastor of Catalina Lutheran Church in Tucson, Arizona. Good morning, Pastor Morehouse. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Good morning, Pastor Boo. It's good to be back. Well, I say back because you've been on the program several times, just not with me. It's been almost a whole year since your last visit, and you were on with uh, Brady Finnern, who has since gone on to host Concord Matters, and uh, I think he's sort of busy up in the Minnesota North District as DP now. But since this is your first time as a guest with me, I just wondered, would you mind taking a moment, introduce yourself to our listeners, share a little bit about how God is working in your life and through uh, Catalina Lutheran Church there in Tucson? Certainly. I've been here at Catalina Lutheran Church now in my, ending my 25th year, marking the anniversary soon of 25 years of serving Christ to his people in Catalina. The congregation has been richly blessed and is learning what it means uh, to him who is given much, much will be required. And we thank God for that. Um, been here established ourselves my wife and i are coming up on our uh, sapphire wedding anniversary so i've been here like 20 years less than i've been married so you can figure out who's in charge in that case right. the congregation itself is uh, alive well and active she uh, weathered through the pandemic by running multiple services to provide uh, god's people with his gifts on a regular basis almost daily basis through that and moving forward she's looking forward to building a new building on our property a new church building uh, in the next couple of years we'll be breaking ground and the lord has blessed us through that we also have very active chapters in lutheran women's missionary league with operation barnabas um, with our we have a lay diaconate here not to be confused with licensed lay deacons but these are laymen that have been trained we have uh, multiple bible studies we're on our seventh pretty much full-time vicar in a row with an eighth one in the pipeline so very busy very exciting time to be here in catalina and we're enjoying the sunshine and the temps in the 70s today well it does it sounds like you're keeping very busy and of course i'm just going to ignore your comment about the weather since i'm up here in minnesota and we are not experiencing 70s we'll just leave it at that uh, we're more in the 10s okay. <laughs> but um 
it makes for a nice somber Lent. Uh, you know, we have joyful repentance, but it's not about the weather. We don't get too much good weather during this season, but that's okay. Well, um, our text for today is, well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a nice one. It's a positive one in the midst of what we've been talking about. As we've been studying Hosanna, there's just, just been a lot of law. And the law continues, of course, but it, it continues in a way that gives us glimpses into why the law exists in the first place. And that is, out of God's great love for us, he gives us his law. Out of his great love for us. He calls us to repentance, and this is what he's doing. He's calling Israel to repentance. But before we get into any of the text, I think it's a good idea to start off our time together in prayer, and I'd like to invite you to lead us in that prayer. Thank you very much. Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you say in your word that when Israel was a child, you loved him, and that out of Egypt you called him. We confess that we see that text in the light of the New Testament revelation that, that speaks, of course, as Israel that is, Christ being Israel boiled down to one. We ask for forgiveness for the times wherein we have forgotten that we who are attached to Christ, who is our head, have forgotten our status as your children. And give you thanks for the forgiveness and calls to repentance that you've given to us throughout our lives. We ask that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us this day as we study through Hosea chapter 11 and into chapter 12. All these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last time we ended our chapter by saying in verse 15, Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil, at dawn the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. It sort of transitions then into talking about Yahweh's love for Israel. I'm going to read the first two verses of our text for today just to get us started. This is going to be chapter 11, verses 1 and 2 from the English Standard Version. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. So just, just a little taste of what we're going to be getting into today. So Israel, when he was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. I know we could dig into that for quite a while, and we're going to. But before we do, just catch us up, brother. What's, what's been going on? Uh, what's a good thing? If, if people haven't yet uh, tuned in, let's say this is the first time they're tuning in, what would we tell them about Hosea to sort of catch them up very quickly? So simply, we are putting this as I say that we have been through 10 chapters of hammer time in Hosea, where the law is being declared upon God's people to drive them to repentance. And now we have entered chapter 11, where we hear of God's compassion. And actually, this is the second allegory in Hosea. The first was in uh, chapters 1 through 3 with Hosea and Gomer. And now we're in the second allegory section with God comparing himself as father to Israel, his son. Okay, so that is definitely, I mean, we've gone from the idea of a marriage to now father and son. And so when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, obviously, I think any Christian who's been to church uh, during uh, any, any, uh, any amount of time at all in their life are going to have these words, out of Egypt I called my son, ringing in their ears with Jesus Christ being that son that was called out of Egypt 
uh, we might say during uh, or after Epiphany. So, so what's the connection here? I mean, obviously it points to Jesus, but I guess tell us a little bit about Israel being the type of the Messiah. So in Exodus chapters 1 through 19, and we don't have time to read all of those, we will find that um, Israel is named, in particularly chapter 4, as the firstborn son of Yahweh, or the God who creates all things and sustains all things. So Israel is the type that which is like a die cast uh, to a uh, thing struck on the die of that which will come within the context of Hosea. The text is speaking through the prophet to Israel. So first and foremost, it is to them, reminding them that God had called them to be his son as he called them out of bondage in Egypt. Then through the faith, and we would you already mentioned in Matthew chapter 2, we see this applied then to the Christ. So when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Um, what, what is he saying when he says when Israel was a child, though, right? I mean, were, is this just like when he was, you know, created, when, when he brought, when he first set apart Israel as his people? Um, you know, I know that we can reference back to uh, Hosea 2. It's also this being called out of Egypt. Uh, he says in Hosea 2.15, And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope, and there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt, well, now, as you said, the, the, the uh, symbolism has changed into now another allegory of now father and child, but it's the same message. There was a time when Israel uh, was expected to be faithful, and now I'm calling them back. Am I reading that the right way? I agree with your reading. I would say that uh... The, we keep translating it child is probably better rendered as youth or lad, so someone who's not just a preteen, but someone who is able to make some decisions. And you and I could probably come to the conclusion that that lasted about two weeks after they were led outside of uh, Egypt uh, before right. they began straying. But yes, I, I believe that your read is correct, and I fully support that. Well, so then we see the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. If we add in 3 and 4, he says, Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. Um, again, so we add this extra language. You know, the Lord really is there for his people despite their constant rebellion. Tell us a little bit about what this looks like in the life of Israel then, and maybe how it applies to us today. Well, this whole first section, one through four, is God reminding his people of the things, the good things that he had done for them in the past. And of course, keeping with the concept of father and lad, uh, he's reminding them that even when they were toddlers, he was there with them, kind of holding the hand like you would with a toddler uh, to, to keep them from stumbling and falling. And that he, even as he draws them out, he is guiding them, but he's guiding them in a way that gives them freedom 
and the imagery that he uses as far as a, a yoke being around uh, the neck of a beast of burden, the concept is the yoke's back far enough so that the beast can eat even as it's following the guidance of the one who is leading them. It actually, he explains in terms of the ropes that these are ropes of love. So these are not uh, in terms of driving them hard with a, a rod, but rather guiding them gently and allowing them to feed upon the good things that he has wanted to provide for them. In a way, it's for us today when we're working with someone, with someone's or with someone who is in being called to repentance, reminding them of the good things that they've had is a way to set them up. It's the good news that they had that can be used by the Holy Spirit to, to allow them to, when they hear the law, actually turn from their sins. Without this good news, the most we could expect would be that they would be sorrowing over their sins, as these things are pointed out, but they would have no ability to turn from them because they have no reminders of God's good grace for them. It, in a way, even playing with, with uh, discipline of children in the home, if one just drops the hammer all the time with no uh, reminders of the love that's there, the child could end up in terms of the way they think, in terms of real despair, that is, lack of any hope for any change. Yes, I know I'm terrible. Uh, I know you, but here it's, yes, you're terrible, yet you weren't always that way and you can return to that because I'm the one who's calling you back. I'm the one who loves you and cares for you. It reminds me a little bit of labeling theory. In my first life before I became a pastor, uh, my undergraduate degree is in uh, criminal justice, criminology, that sort of thing. And there's this idea of labeling theory where if you, I guess to simplify it, if you call somebody something enough, they're eventually going to just believe it and then act out in, in what you've labeled them as. Uh, and this is the theory that's behind a lot of the language changes in um, juvenile courts. Like you you don't get uh, convicted, you get adjudicated, you you don't go to uh, um, jail, you, you know, you get, there's just all these sort of euphemisms where it, it, I think it's taken in a too simplistic way. But the point is, if you if you tell a child constantly that they're a, a bad person, they're horrible, they're awful, and and they're never going to amount to anything, then they might not amount to anything because there's there's nothing to prove. So when it talks about God calling them back, he he does it in such a way that yes, there is this acknowledgement that what you're doing is wrong, but that's not who you were called to be. It's not who you have to be. And of course, in in God, we can they can they can exceed those those um, those sins that the evilness, the wickedness, the rebellion that they keep falling into. There is hope. At least that's how I see it. Well, I agree with you. And in terms of the way we would express things in the church, it actually has to deal with how we receive and hear God's word. That which we say or sing becomes that which we believe. So here in Hosea. They've had a lot of law ahead of time. They're being called from their sins, but you have been my child. You are my child. I want you to be my child who follows me. And the as the allegory works through, again, reminding them of what God would have them be because they actually bear his name. He is their father. So calling the child back to repentance through reminding them of what they were meant to be. 
And that's really important. I, I, I don't want to derail the conversation, but I noticed in verse 4, I led them with cords of kindness. It can be translated a couple different ways. One of the other way is that uh, I led them with like human cords, human ties. Uh, do you have any insight in under that? I mean, is there something significant to say that these are human cords or are we just sort of falling for some, you know, homonyms that we might not be familiar with because we don't speak Hebrew? Well, I think that uh, there's a way to summarize this first section in terms of the allegory between father and chi- a child. And that particular illustration there is that it shows that God works in human affairs, often using human means, even though people don't realize it, that God himself sets the limits, like the toddler in verse three, God allows himself to change his mind or not, uh, that God's wrath is not like human wrath. In other words, we get into states of wrath where we don't forget. God himself has said, I will remember your sins no more. I will put them as far as the east is from the west. And the fifth thing that might summarize this section is that God is transcendent and imminent. Imminent. That is, uh, he, he even though he uses humans in terms of working his way and will and bringing his people to repentance, and we see that throughout the Old Covenant era where he will use foreign kings, pagan kings, to bring discipline on his people until such time as they turn from their sins and repent. He also uses people, and uh, we actually studied the minor, minor prophets over several years here on our Thursday evening Bible studies, uh, in terms of using people to bring blessings to his people also. So God is a God who works through means for the benefit of his people. Um, We would say the reason why he does that is because if we were to face him in his full glory, what would our position be? Physically, we'd be on the ground, face to the ground, trying to climb back to the dust from which we were created. So God using the human means to bring about change either called repentance or pronouncing forgiveness is definitely within this text. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And then he talks about, we've seen so far as we've gone through Hosea, they, they seek, they're seeking after idols. They're seeking after the Assyrians for help. They're, they're looking basically in all the wrong places And this isn't the first time that God has reminded them that he's the one that will do the healing. He's the one that will do the protecting. But we see here again, after he talks about the cords of kindness, the bands of love, he says, And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to to them and fed them. So we have two things. One, the I bent down to them and fed them is certainly reminding the people that God is the one condescending to us out of great love. We could never approach or climb to him. And then secondly, just before that, the easing of the yoke brings to my mind yet again a Christ promise to uh, give us uh, an eased yoke. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, one of the contrasts that doesn't come out, and I don't know how far down the the sidetrack we're going to go, but the burning incense to the to the idols uh, was part of Baal worship, and Baal worship had shown its head in the nations of both Israel and Judah throughout the time before Hosea's call, and even during Hosea's call. And the 
typical offering offered to the Baal, which was the fertility god symbolized by a bull, tied to uh, the storm god, which would provide the rains. And in Arizona here, we can relate to that. When we get rains, we know what's going to happen a few weeks later. The, the desert's going to bloom, not only with the wonderful cactus blooms, but with all the weeds. And so um, the people were continually drawn away to the worship of the peoples that were around them and the peoples that were in their midst because in the initial exodus, they did not do what they were commanded to do by God, which was turn those people over to God as a whole burnt offering. And so Hosea speaking in this time surely has in his mind, I date this to about the 8th century, that which happened in the 9th century down into the 8th century in terms of Israel and in Jerusalem, in, in Judah, Jerusalem, that the various kings had set up temples of Baal uh, in, in, in the land. And there have been various times when they were torn down, but they keep raising them up. In fact, the um, Ahab dynasty, Ahab and Jezebel, had actually attempted to do what many people in our age do, which is fuse the worship of pagan gods, particularly Baal, with the worship of the one true God. And we know that that God does not accept that because he is a jealous God. There is no other gods but him. And in addition, the Baal worship in special times actually called for human sacrifice, that which God did not accept. So you have that contrast going on here with the Father, Son. And why, why do you turn to this? What, where, does that end, where does that begin with? It begins with the garden. Did God really say? And man's attempt to take that which is around him or her and incorporate it into the worship of the one true God. And that applies in our day too. And we see this with many churches, for lack of a better term, the mainline churches where they're trying to, the technical term would be syncretize that which is around them and come up with some form of Christianity, which is in the end when studied, not fully faithful to the verbal inspiration of the scriptures. Well, and that's an issue, and we've talked about that a little bit on this show already, but it's worth revisiting, and that is that, you know, when we think about what uh, Israel was doing, they were trying to basically avoid being distinct from the nations around them. They they wanted to say, hey, look, you know, we're just like you, we, 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 and then that way they could get help from them or maybe uh, ease, ease their, uh, their uh, national defense issues. But in this day and age, there are so many idols that the world worships, and there are also way too many churches who are saying, oh, look, we, we worship those same idols just like you. We just put Jesus on the shelf with the rest of them. Or we, we address all of these concerns which have become idols to the world, but we do it through Jesus or through, through this, um, this Christianity that we've sort of reinvented so that it's palatable to the world. And, and that's where God says things like, you know, you come to me, there aren't any of these burdens, and then I'm the one who's bending down and feeding you. It, it really it shows us that, that sin and even unfaithfulness, whether as unfaithfulness as a child or unfaithfulness as a, as a spouse, uh, these things don't make sense. They don't make logical sense. I think God makes that clear. That's correct. God you, wants us to use the ministerial use of reason, and... Most people, when pressed far enough, will recognize that there is some higher power, for lack of a better term, 
And they spend their lives, there's basically only two religions in the world, the religion where God reaches down to lift man up, and the other one where man, humans, reach up to God to try to bring him down. And him bending down reveals exactly what type of God he is, and that yes, even though he works through human instruments, we're not to even trust in them, but to trust in him who is watching over for us, which will then allow us to transition to, to verse 5, I think. And we can do that, too, because you talk about working through human instruments, and we have in verses 5, 6, and 7 um, a little bit more explanation of what's going on. Here we go. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. And, and that's, that's scary when people are so removed from God, they, or they remove themselves so much from God, they are so apostate, that now their worship is is completely unacceptable to the Lord, and he won't, he promises not to hear. That can be a scary thing. But but he says here that they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. Um, this, of course, takes place, but it's also in the same context here where they were reaching out to Assyria for help for their defense, and now Assyria is going to take over. That's correct. They were placing their hope in foreign kings, and... Uh... We have the promise, of course, that they will not go back into exile in Egypt, but they're going to have another conquering king, one who will be the one who exercises God's discipline because his people, whom he is lovingly referred to in the first four verses, have rejected him. And they have despised his love. And because they have despised his love, they're going to receive punishment. For to turn to foreign kings is to actually turn from God, because here Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. He brooks no other leader for his people, Israel, and yet they have turned away. And you actually use the term apostasy, the falling away from the faith. And because of that, not because of God's desire, but because of their desire, he's not going to lift them up. He's not going to raise them up to what he wants them to be and pointed out they were once in the first section. This is the present that he's dealing with in terms of time in Hosea's uh, text here. This is the present. They have turned away. Uh, okay, you're not going to go back to Egypt, but you're going to get what you asked for, which is the rule of a foreign king. Right, and that is the worry that we should have. Whenever we seek after the idols of this world and we want to find rescue in even the people and governments of this world over and above God and over and above his will, then there is a point at which he might just give us what we're asking for, and that's something that we should not uh, be uh, very slack about. We should definitely make sure that all that we do gives glory to God and puts him first. Uh, folks, we're going to take just a few minutes for a break, but don't go anywhere. When we come back, Pastor Morehouse and I will continue with Hosea chapter 11. We'll see you on the other side.
Take a look around you. Look closely. Immigrants in the United States and their U.S.-born children now number about 81 million people, or 26% of the population. So chances are, there's someone right in your community who doesn't speak English as a first language and who doesn't know Jesus. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation can help by providing you with free Lutheran books translated into over 90 languages. See their complete list of catechisms and Bible storybooks at lhfmissions.org. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Philbert, and with me today is the Reverend Dr. Michael Morehouse, pastor of Catalina Lutheran Church in Tucson, Arizona. I hope you're enjoying our discussion as we dive deeper into the Word of God. Remember, if you have any thoughts or questions or feedback, uh, always feel comfortable emailing me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. I'd love to hear from you. And remember, you can tune in to Thy Strong Word on the radio if you're in the St. Louis area or, or live on kfuo.org to listen on demand. You do the same thing. If you're always on the go like I am, don't forget to download that KFUO app. I use it in my truck. It's great. Or you can subscribe to Thy Strong Word on your favorite podcasting platform, um, and that'll keep you up to date. I'm just honored to have you join us for our study today. And if you wouldn't mind, Share the program. Let your friends and family know about the many ways they can listen into. Thanks for being a part of our community. All right. Well, Pastor Borhouse, before the break, we were just getting into verses five, six, and seven. Um, my people are bent on turning away from me, it says in seven. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. That's scary language, but as you were saying, that's not because of what God wants to happen. It's just this is God giving in, uh, or I should say just giving the people the desires of their heart. It's because of the people, not God. That's correct. We uh, live in an age where we're told to follow our heart, and yet when we look inside and honestly, look at ourselves, we realize that out of the heart come all manner of unclean thing. Now, that's uh, unclean things. That's us as individuals. Now, put that into a people chasing after the things of this world to find security and hope. And those things pass. Um, I can think over the past few presidential election cycles as it doesn't matter whether you're on the right or left side of the spectrum, your can the the candidates tend to be seen almost as a new messiah, the one that will do the things, enact the things, uh, uphold the things that will somehow make for peace on earth and stability for everyone. And yet, we have seen over the last few decades that actually doesn't happen. That when we put our trust in princes, they too will pass away. And yet for us as Christians, we do live in that world, but our hope is to be centered on God, knowing that he is in his heaven and he's watching over us. He stoops down to us and he will bear us up no matter what the civil or secular authorities bring. And that we should not try to accommodate our trust in the things of this world to save us from that which we think we need saving from. Reminds me kind of when I went into Iraq in combat, we had one of the Joes showed up with a necklace and he had pretty much every amulet that you could think of 
around his neck. So from the Buddhist wheel to the Christian cross to the uh, Star of David, I mean, this thing was huge. And basically he was hedging his bets right. uh, that one of these might work. Well, the rest of the story, to, to quote a, a dead fellow by the name of Paul Harvey, was that he made it through. But it wasn't because of the ambulance. It was because of God's grace and mercy for him in the hopes that he would hear the gospel and be saved. But isn't that really, well, you know, I was going to say, isn't that really how the world is for everybody? Everybody's sort of putting their faith in all of these things, or rather giving lip service to all of these things in hopes that one of them will work. But you know what? I stopped myself halfway through because I feel like since then, the tides have turned to where people really trust in themselves in a way that is pretty consistent with the sinful human nature, but in a way that we haven't seen in a long time. Um, you are right, though, of course, when you talk about in the political sphere, I remember distinctly it being uh, very obvious during President Obama's campaign and presidency that people really put him up on this pedestal, I think even against his own desires. And then this happens again with President Trump on the opposite side of the, of the aisle. And I did not see that necessarily with, say, Presidents Clinton and Presidents Bush. Uh, so it's kind of like, you know, it, it, people for a moment there were going back to putting their trust in princes. And then for a while it was putting their trust in institutions and then putting their trust in a science. And we sell that with COVID a lot. And in, in these last days, we're seeing people putting their trust back into themselves. Uh, it just seems like things have not changed since the time of the Israelites because people want to put their faith, hope, and trust in almost anything except God, who gives us every reason to put our trust in him. Yes, I think we've again reached the time in history where the creatures are worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And uh, we've had multiple cycles of this throughout the history of the world. And it, we, we have the lessons of history, just like this text is calling back to the people of Israel to say, hey, you have these blessings, and then you went away from them. We, we get these repeated creature worshiping the creature uh, times, and they have never worked out well. And this is one of the arguments in terms of apologetics that, that we would use is that everyone has a God, even if they say they don't. And I think you've nailed it right now for many people, certainly not all, the God is the God of self. And so the struggle is to find out what makes me as the individual happy, what fulfills me. And so it's a constant striving after what I want, which is a striving that can never be fulfilled. Compare that to the creator who wants to give all good gifts to all people and who continues to reach down to bring those gifts. And people turn from that because they'd rather look at themselves. And, and it's a sad state of affairs, but we've been there before. Wow. And often what it takes to move from that is a major calamity in the known world. We can think of the fall of Rome. We can think of um, various times in history where these massive uh influx of thinking about oneself has led to nothing but disaster because eventually if you are your own god then you can do whatever pleases you but what about your neighbor and and that's where the collapse begins to happen and i think we're in the middle of it right now mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's a shame. And I don't, I hopefully, hopefully see the pendulum swinging back a little bit where people are at the very least looking outside of themselves for help. Because when you have the navel gazing, it's so much harder, I think, to redirect that toward God who is outside of you than it is if, let's say, you put your, your trust in the government or the trust in the church, the trust in the you know, in military industrial complex, I don't know, whatever you put your trust in, if it's outside of you, I just feel like it's a little easier to redirect that towards its its proper direction in God than it is if you just feel like you are the God over everything and you are the final arbiter of truth. It's so much harder to convince you that truth is outside of yourself. That's correct, until it falls apart. And if we move to uh, eight through the end of the chapter, but particularly eight, eight and nine, God himself addresses Israel again, which means he's addressing those people who should be the ones who bear his name, who should be part of the faith, and he addresses them again as a parent. Well, let's do it. Let's read 8 and 9. Let's add it to the conversation. Here we go. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Uh, that's a, a hopeful, hopeful uh, word there. Well, following the law that they just heard, this is for those who are the faithful ones who are to know that there is a future where he's not going to, even though they're going to have to face his wrath through as part of the God's people that have fallen away through the Assyrians, they're not going to be forever abandoned. And he promises deliverance. That is, he promises the salvation that they need to give them hope during the time that they're going to go into captivity. And it shows that God's compassion is going to prevent their utter destruction. And he uses actually an illustration here with Adma and Zeboim, which are two of the cities that are named alongside Sodom and Gomorrah. The people would understand that were faithful the historical biblical record of what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities, uh, that they're not going to be facing that and that God is going to still hold his compassion for the faithful among him, and he's not going to destroy Ephraim, who represents Israel in this context, and that he is going to place his holiness once again among them. Of course, in history, that's played out with the well, the rebuilding of the first temple in the time of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, but they don't know that when they're first hearing this. So again, God, having given the law, now gives good news about his attitude toward his people. And that allows those who are facing the judgment, even in that time, to know that it's not going to last forever. It not lasting forever is such the key. And right now we're during, um, we're experiencing lit and during this Lenten tide, we, we, that's what we think about, right? We say, well, we're in it's sort of a somber, mournful time. Well, I mean, yes, in that we might pay a little bit more attention to our sinful state before God and need for reconciliation with the Father, but it's not mournful in the sense that we know the end of the story. We know that there's more coming. We see, we, we see Christ resurrected from the dead. 
uh, for our for our sake. And I guess that's what Yahweh's wanting these people to remember. He's wanting them to remember his rescue of them from Egypt, his calling of them when they were young, the fact that he has been a father to them, the fact that he's the one who binds them up and heals them and feeds them. And so he lets them know that, yeah, I, I, I portend all of this horrible disaster, and you all deserve it, but I, I'm compassionate. And, and I'm not going to destroy Ephraim. I, I, I won't execute my whole plan of, of judgment uh, for those, as you put, who are faithful, because there is a remnant, and there, there's always going to be a remnant. Even in our day, and these words here can apply to our day for those Christians who are facing persecution around the world, those who are feeling persecution because of things going on in social media in the first world countries, that... While it seems like there's a lot of pressure, and, and there is, it won't endure forever because God is watching over us. He's taking care of us. He will deliver us for this momentary affliction that we're receiving when compared to the eternal weight of glory that is already ours because we've been baptized, which means we've already died with Christ and risen to new life with him, that this momentary affliction that we're going through in our age will not endure forever, for we have an eternity before us where there will be bliss, where God's compassion for us will be shown fully for what it meant and will be one with him. I'm going to read the rest of the chapter, including the first verse of chapter 12, which finishes the thought. So it's only four verses. So starting with verse 10. They shall go after Yahweh. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares Yahweh. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. So it seems that we get this common and powerful image of Yahweh and his strength. He roars like a lion, and it seems to be giving us this illustration of the survivors, the remnant coming back to the land. It's correct. It's giving it's giving hope and the promise just for those who like textual notes. This is the only third person use in the chapter, speaking of Yahweh and the as as not the direct speaker like uh, it had before, where the prophet's speaking for the Lord, and the concept of him roaring like a lion. Of course, we could do the mental uh, gymnastics or the mental math. Say, well, okay, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, so this would again be uh, for telling him coming, that people will come to him in repentance and faith, and that uh, they will um, be rescued. And then he speaks of them as a dove. Uh, the word there would be Yonah, which uh, we translate Jonah, um, from the land of Assyria. And he will cause them to dwell in their own house. So it's a, a promise to those who are faithful that they will continue to receive the promise even when they're going to suffer time of being separated from the land of the promise. And then he, in the beginning of chapter 12 in our English Bibles, he then makes the distinction between the unfaithful, um, Ephraim representing, 
I would say, the northern kingdom here that's unfaithful, and then contrasting it to, at that time, the southern kingdom, where there tended to be more faithful people. I mean, they got about 150 more years of time to repent after the northern kingdom fell, um, based on the reality of what happened with the Assyrians, that um, there would be faithful people still left in the land. And so again, words of hope for those who are suffering. And it shows who the actor is, that is, that it's God that's going to do this, that God is the one who's going to bring them back to the land of the promise, or keep them in the land of promise, and that God will drive away those who are unfaithful. So they don't have to worry about doing it themselves. And that's a lesson for our day. We hear, I hear uh, from many people in general Christianity, well, if we would just get the right uh, laws in place, we could drive out those evil people, whoever they are, and uh, we could turn back the whole culture of, of um, racism and wokeism and all the other isms. If we just get the right laws, just get the right uh, interpretations of the Constitution, and that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about who's going to make the change, who's going to protect them, that is the Lord, that he is the speaker. Uh, of these promises to his people. And he's the one that shows that he knows what the reality is between those who are unrepentant in their sins and those who are faithful. Well, I was going you did address it. So I was going to ask about though this, you know, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah still walks with God. And you did a, a, an excellent job of explaining it because I do know that earlier Judah is included in this judgment. It, it is shown that they will eventually um, also be <laughs> unfaithful to the Lord. But earlier he talks about you know the lion to Judah and then the young lion to uh, pardon me, the lion to Israel and the young lion to Judah. And I asked the guest, you know, do you think that this is just uh, Hebrew poetry or are we seeing a, a lesser extent by saying the younger lion to Judah or what? Um, and he had his his own opinions, but it seems here too that you're adding to that that when he says Judah still walks with God, obviously that's not a falsehood, but it doesn't mean that they aren't also the subject of some of the judgments that we're seeing. Um, is that because Hosea is writing over the course of a long period of time and things are changing on the ground, or or what? Is there some reason why earlier on we see Judah being included and now it it kind of stands apart? I would agree that. Uh, in terms of Hosea's writing, it would have to do with him uh, writing over the period of time and the time when the northern kingdom, depending on how you date this, is actually falling to make a contrast for the people. And in particular in uh, 12.1, uh, you have the contrast between Ephraim slash Israel and Judah slash the southern kingdom, the ones who are faithful. And actually in that verse, he calls them his holy ones. So in terms of the timing of history, the northern kingdom falls because it's fully apostatized. And that's falling, I believe, based on God's wanting to give a warning to the southern kingdom. Look at it. It happened to your brothers. Repent so that it doesn't happen to you, which then shows God's nature. His will is that none would be lost and that all would hear his word and be saved, right? So he gives this warning within this text here in the context of this text, making the contrast between the northern and the southern kingdom. 
and he and at this point in time the northern kingdom israel ephraim uh, here is actually running after vanity if we want to quote the teacher from uh, ecclesiastes all things are vanity and dealing with violence but yet there are still still those and apparently the majority in the southern kingdom at that time in history that were faithful to the one true god now when we see way back in chapter 5 um, verse 13 in fact he writes that when ephraim saw his sickness in judah his wound and ephraim went to assyria and sent to the great king but he's not able to cure you or heal your wound and then later in chapter 7, verse 11, he says, Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. And here we see again this idea of they make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. So I bring this up because I, I know that there might be people wondering, is this God basically saying that they should have never had any sort of alliances with other kingdoms outside their own sort of a a nationalism or a, or a isolationism. This is what they should have been doing. Uh, or is there more to this than that? And I, I already lean towards being more to it, but I'm hoping that you'll explain why it's not just Israel was supposed to be a, a hermit nation in the middle of the world. Well, I agree with you. I, I lean towards the, the reality that God placed his people, Israel, in the Levant on arguably the most well-traveled trade route in that time in history um, so that people would go through that land, merchants and kings and so forth, and see this people that were different. They worship one God. They did not expose their children. They treated their wives not as property to be shared with others, but uh, as the flesh of their flesh and the bone of their bones. So God is not speaking against alliances because there are times in the Old Covenant where he, he indicates what alliances they are to have or he blesses certain alliances. It's when the alliances take the place of their trust in God that they are receiving the punishment. And, of course, not that there can't be a demonstration of forgiveness on behalf of the nation of Israel, but you figure it should be a very long time before they would want to do any business with Egypt, just practically speaking. Right. I mean, they had this, you know, for us, we keep going to back to baptism. We go to Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins, his resurrection to declare us right with the Father. Those, those are the events that Christians draw to. But for the ancient um, Israelites, it was the exodus. And so that within their collective national, let alone faith memory, we have the reality of what happened to them in Egypt. And so um, having alliances with those who had been their former persecutors in hopes that they would deliver them as opposed to the one true God is what's being spoken against here. Yeah. You actually it have a... The, go ahead. Well, just because it just shows the irrationality, as I said earlier, of their sin, right? It just doesn't make sense. They, they, they would rather return to their persecutors because to, to quote the Israelites themselves, you know, the, the meat pots, the flesh pots in Egypt. Right. It's kind of we're, we're down the line, of course, but but still, it's kind of like doing that again. Well, it's looking at those who seem to have more worldly power, more worldly authority. And I would argue that Egypt didn't have it at this time, but they're again working that's close in terms of proximity. So, well, let's look to that 
power that's stronger than we are for our deliverance, which is not going to happen because Assyria is much more powerful. Um, so again, having a, a warning here to not trust in the rulers of this world for one's salvation, but to look to the God who comes down to his people to bring them good and beautiful and precious gifts to sustain them throughout their lives so that in the end, they may join him in the new heavens and the new earth. That's where the call is. This whole section is actually, this the first section of, of chapter 12 is actually using Jacob as uh, both a good and a bad example. And we think about Jacob himself, the man, he had uh, many blessings in his life, but he also had times where he uh, uh, had times of depravity where he struggled with his with his mother and his brother and his wives and with God. And that just came up in the readings, the wrestling with God. And Ephraim gets those qualities, but yet God, uh, Jacob also turned to God when he um, is blessed by God in terms of God besting him in the wrestling contest and uh, allowing him to receive many blessings. So this whole section is showing, in, in a way we might say it's showing Israel as sinner saint, and God helping through his word to put down the sinner part so that the saint might arise. Well, that's a good word. We are sort of at the end of our program, though. So uh, anything else you want to say in the next minute or so that we have left that uh, sum up or any final word for the people? Well, in terms of the minor prophets, many people don't spend a lot of time studying them uh, because they, like I said, we had 10 chapters of hammer time until we get to a chapter of promises but yet they still can be seen as applicable to our day. And above all, everyone should be mindful that God is still the God who wants to bless his people, those who are named with his name, even in our new covenant era. That is a good word. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Dr. Michael Morehouse, pastor of Catalina Lutheran Church in Tucson, Arizona. Thanks, Pastor, for being back on the show. I hope to have you on again. Thank you, Pastor Boo. May God bless you and the congregation you serve and all the listeners. Thank you, brother. Folks, on tomorrow's program, we're going to be diving into Hosea chapter 12. We're going to keep on going. This chapter continues the prophet's message of warning and admonition to the people of Israel, and it contains powerful lessons, just as our speaker said, that still rings true for us today. Join me and my guest as we explore Hosea's criticism of the nation's leaders and wealthy citizens for their dishonesty and greed and course, his call for repentance and turning back to God. We'll also delve into the importance of living justly and with integrity and the consequences of turning away from God. So folks, don't miss it. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong hand.